0: Hi, everyone. This is Fatima Keshavars and this is Radio Rumi. I spoke with you once before, so this is our second program in the series. I quoted for you the wondrous words of Rumi saying speak a new language so the world would be a new world. So that's the philosophy behind these series and I'm hoping that the words of Rumi will bring that freshness to the world around us, a world that very much needs that freshness and change. A world that does not need more walls to be built, but it needs to learn to speak the language of everyone. So in that spirit, let's move forward. And as I told you before, I'm not in a studio. I'm in my house in Silver Spring, Maryland. I'm a professor of Persian and a teacher of things poetic and mystic. And we are going to use both these in these series. Since I don't do any studio editing and any changes afterwards, and this is all completely spontaneous, I listen to it afterwards and I think about things that I left out. And I may be able to compensate for in the second program or third or fourth or whatever is ahead of us. So as I listened to the first program, I realized that we talked about Rumi and his life and the family migration from Balkh, the city of Balkh in Afghanistan, to um, the city of Konya in Turkey, and I did not give you any dates, as I did all those things. So let me correct that and tell you. That Rumi was actually born in 1207 in the city of Vakhsh, outside the city of Balkh, in present-day Afghanistan, where he lived until almost the age of nine. Well, his family migrated to Konya, as I told you before, and he grew up there and studied there and had a wonderful trip to Aleppo in present-day Syria. too learn and to be more educated and came back and around the age 25 took over the school in which his father taught. That's because his father passed away and the society asked him um, to do that. Okay, um, I also told you about the arrival of Shams, the wandering dervish who in fact turned out to be a very learned and very interesting character. And at some point we will talk about Shams because he is a person in his own rights, very, very um, interesting to look at. But for now, let me just tell you that the date at which he arrived in the city of Konya and made all that change in Rumi's life was year 1244. So, um, if this date is correct, and I guess we know a lot of stuff about Rumi's life, but sometimes some of these dates are not kind of absolutely um, clear to the, to the year, but roughly correct. Um, so Rumi must have been around the age of 40, just a little bit younger, perhaps. The other thing I did not tell you While we talked about the fact that Shams, in fact, made a great impact on Rumi's life. In a way, he worked like the mirror that Rumi looked into and didn't want to see an ossified scholar just holding on to the quote-unquote knowledge of everything that he knew and everything he had learned. He decided he wanted this to make a difference to his life. So I told you that, but we did not talk about his whirling because um, one of the impacts of meeting Shams was that he in fact stopped teaching at that school in that kind of a formal um, scholastic way. Um, He withdrew from that, but he did a lot of public speaking and connecting to people. In different ways. Um he started writing more poetry even though before he had written poetry all his life he had been very interested in poetry. What I did not tell you is that he started whirling the activity that in, in which a Dervish um or a member of the followers of Rumi, which by the way he did not establish other people did in his name. These people could train, not every one of them, but a group of them from childhood to start whirling to music or turning around. And you do actually see that they raise one hand to the sky or to the heavens and another hand towards the earth, which means, or at least one of its interpretations are, that this philosophy of life Wants to keep the heaven and the earth connected. Our body and soul are the same and are connected. One of them is not base and the other one exalted. We are the same person, body and soul. And we have to revere and value both of them. So this whirling goes on sometimes for hours to music. Oh, why? I don't know if we can really find a why for it. Rumi sometimes said, well, the whole heavens are whirling, the stars are whirling, the universe is in motion, and all of that is animated with love. So why should we sit still? Why should we act as if nothing moves, as if life is um, stagnant? Well, in some ways, I guess the message was, you cannot stay on the margins. You have to literally join the dance. You have to be out there, part of this universe. Express yourself. Be in love. Remember, expose yourself to the sun of the truth and love around you. So, um... There could be many such messages coming out of it and out of the activity of Whirling, but like everything else, like his poetry, like his thinking, one aspect of these activities are to leave an open space for you to fill it the way you can make sense of it. So somebody might whirl because this dancing whirling movement gives them the freedom to be who they are. And somebody else might, might wish to block their senses so they don't actually see around and focus on the inner development. Somebody else might enjoy being part of this whirling team because Very often, it's not just one person whirling, but a group of people. So, um, that was one thing that happened, and continues to this day. Um, The whirling dervishes, or the members of that order, and many admirers and followers of Rumi everywhere in the world, do this activity as part of a ritualized community coming together, I guess, of um, experiencing spiritual moments together. Something else I would like to tell you is that when I listened to the previous uh, program, or the first program that I recorded, I noticed that I keep saying him when I refer to God. Well, that's quite interesting because that comes very much um, with our socialization to imagine God as a male authoritative figure. There is really nothing in the Persian language or the Sufi discourse or for that matter in the Quran itself that would make God a man or a woman. It's kind of a force of goodness. It's a kind of a reflection of the truth in fact one of the words the sufis use to refer to god is haq which means the truth which is what rumi used very often so every time you hear me say he as i refer to god just correct me in your mind it is an error that comes with habit and by the way one of the fundamental Principles of mysticism for Rumi and for many, many other mystics was to break out of habits. They saw our habits as traps, as things that we do so often that we almost do them in our sleep. It's almost like we do sleepwalking through life without thinking about Is this really what I want to do? Is this place where I want to be? And if not, what else can I do? Also, whenever I quote a beautiful story from Rumi to you, and there will be many, many stories as we move forward, please remember that even though I refer to them as Rumi's stories, They often come from all over the world. As I told you earlier, he was very well versed in many other traditions. He read, he interacted with people, and the city of Konya was almost cosmopolitan. It had Turkish speakers, Arab speakers, Persian speakers, Greeks would be coming and going, so... A lot of culture, a lot of thought, a lot of stories were exchanged, and he made use of them. And of course, in addition to that, he wrote, as I said, he was very familiar with many texts. So when I say Rumi stories, like the story of the elephant, sometimes there are stories from the cultures of India. Sometimes they come from Greek philosophy. Sometimes they come from pre-Islamic Iran, or post-Islamic Iran, or some Arab part of the globe, or Arab-speaking part of the globe. So, but again, we are so used to these concepts of possessing something, of attributing it to an individual. In a way, we see it as more authentic and original, if that attribution is established. But of course, every fiber in our beings, when we study these things, show us that all of these attributions and authentications are, or if not all, most of them are forced. We do that because it makes us feel more certain. Also, let me remind you one more time I am not reading from notes. I do have my notes. I go back to points and I look at the poems, but I'm speaking spontaneously and very often with closed eyes. So forgive me if I do not always finish a sentence exactly as I intended to or, as it should be, finished best. Best program ended on an important note speaking other people's language we started that conversation with a reference to who Rumi was and I gave you some ideas about his studies, his travels his family and, and the like today I want to move to one of his poems about himself. And I believe that that could help us see a dimension of the elephant, a way he thinks about himself, but also a way that could extend and or expand to all humanity. To all of us, the way he imagined us potentially able to be, by imagining himself able to be. So, when I do these things, I try to read some of the Persian when possible. That's quite intentional. First of all, I really enjoy reading Persian poetry out loud. It was written to be read out loud, although there's a huge textual tradition and it exists in thousands and thousands of manuscripts all over the globe. But people very much enjoyed reading it out loud to each other. So, that's one reason. The other one is that the language is very musical, and particularly Rumi's language. The verses have interior rhymes in addition to rhymes at the very end. And that all makes it really fun to listen to. Last but not least, (laughs) I am not giving you very polished and researched translations. Again, those are happening pretty much spontaneously. And I believe that while this tradition, this style, has its flaws, it is going to help us feel spontaneous and comfortable and close to the words as opposed to distanced and academic. (laughs) Bacchabirango binishon no colors, no patterns or designs define me. My true self, no one will ever see, or even I will never see. asrar them, Ku Miyan andarin Mian Kemana If you are asking me for the mysteries of the divine or mysteries of the universe, where is I? Where is the divine? Where is the mystery? Kishavat in Ravonan Sokin in Chenin Sa Ken When would my soul quiet down? I am quietly moving all the time. Or, how could my soul ever quiet down when I am moving in such a way all the time as I am quiet? So, let me just tell you what I think about these verses. I think what these verses do is that, first and foremost, they tell you that he doesn't want to define and delineate who he is or any of us are, because there is so much more to us. There is so much more to each one of us as a potential, if we pay attention to it, and if we want to activate it. Which is why he says, you're asking me to give you the mystery of the universe in the middle of all of this. But where is this mystery in the middle of the the mystery that I am? Because I don't know where I am. Where is this? And that's all good news. Because we could all walk in the direction of looking at a new self all the time. And again, this is a concept that he has not invented. This is a concept that mystics talked about all the time. The whole world is a new world. Every moment. Nothing is exactly the same. So, hence the movement of the universe, hence the whirling, which brings a sense of dynamism and fun, really, to the life as opposed to stagnation. Which is why in the third line he says, well, when would my soul quiet down? It cannot because it is quietly moving all the time. And is the fourth line. That he really talks about himself and us, human beings, by giving us a metaphor. Because sometimes these concepts are so hard to define, so hard to explain. The best way is either to tell a story or to give you a metaphor. Because a metaphor is like an empty dish almost, or a half-filled dish. You can fill the rest of it the way you like, the way you can make sense of it. So he says, My sea, or rather even my ocean, but sea is actually the word he's using, My sea has drowned in itself. What an amazing, shoreless sea I am. So he's giving us the image of the sea. Imagine yourself as a sea. Fresh, moving, full of waves. Able to change and at the same time, able to stay in its place. That combination of quietness and movement together. That's true of whirling too. As a person moves, they turn around the axis of their own body. But they're supposed to be in stillness, a stillness, and a stability in the body itself. And then he says, "In jahan wan jahan maro matalab, kindo gumshod daran jahan Don't go looking after me in this world or the world that comes after this world, the next world. That's, you know, the belief in afterlife. Don't look for me in any of these. These worlds, these worlds have disappeared in the world that is me. Again, here, putting his own presence and his own humanity Against the universe, and saying that each one of us is vaster, is more shortless and boundless than the universe. And then he starts bringing to our attention the beloved, because. No matter how large we are, how shoreless, how boundless, there is the one we love. And you're completely free to interpret that one as another human being. He has no problems with that. Yes, he does have ethical and moral principles. We cannot bring out 21st century of, you know, some of the behavioral Patterns that we approve of in this day and age, and expect him, in the thirteenth century, to to agree with those, but with the principle of loving somebody else, desiring somebody else, and being close and intimate to somebody else, he has no problems whatsoever. So he says, (laughs) "Goftame John, to einamaui gof." so i said to my beloved you are like my eyes and that's actually a persian expression and i'm assuming arabic has a similar expression because the word ain for the eye is an arabic term so it says i said to my beloved you're my eyes like you're so dear to me, and so essential to my existence as are my eyes. And the Beloved said, Eynche darin What room do, do eyes have in the kind of openness and manifestation that I am or I have? In other words, Love is a kind of openness, like the spread of sun or the spread of sunshine on earth. It is its own justification. It is its own expression. It is way too spread out, too open, too accessible to depend on just a pair of eyes to feel that love. So now he Rumi is kind of thinking, well, what can I do? I can't say you are as beautiful, and I love you as much as I love my eyes. Um, There seems to be no need for that. We've gone beyond that. So he says, (laughs) "Goft amoni, begoft hay chamush, dar zaban naomadast." So I decided to use a, to use a vague and general explaina, explanation and or description. I said, you are that, Oni. I said, you are that, and then the beloved interrupted me and said, silence. What I am does not fit in any language okay now I can hear you thinking what is going on here ten minutes ago we were talking about how important it is to speak each other's language and now we are saying that there are no words for this and this doesn't fit into language well That's a very interesting question. And a game, a meaningful game, actually, that was played all the time by mystics. Yes, we have to express ourselves. Yes, we have to learn each other's language. But the most significant things, things that matter, do not fit into language. There are no words for them. So ultimately, as we learn each other's language, as we become close to each other, as we build trust, we move beyond language. We move to areas where much could be expressed without using a single word. And that is what here the Beloved, the Truth, God, whoever you choose to interpret that as, and it has been left suitably vague, so you can do that, is telling Rumi, don't try to define me. I do not fit in any of the words you know. It does not fit in language, who I am. So then, Rumi, the poet, finds a trick. He says, "Gavtamandar zabon dar naumat, ye I said, "All right, all right. Since this does not fit into language, I'll be your wordless speaker, the one who speaks without words." You can interpret that as expressing love. You can interpret that as whirling, as just being there. Haven't you ever met people, I'm sure you have met some people, whose presence, just when they enter a room, changes the environment of that room, the space, the feeling. In fact, Rumi says that The best of teachers teach you by being there, not by speaking about things. He says, do the stars in heaven ever speak to you? No, but if you lose your weight in the desert, you look at the stars and you find where you're going, just with their presence. And so here he's saying, since this, that's you, do not fit into language, I'll become a wordless speaker, a wordless poet for you. And you can actually see that that's why his poetry travels to so many cultures and languages very, very easily, precisely for this reason. I see that we're going probably over the half an hour that I want to be the limit of each of these, so let me just quickly read the next line in which Rumi says So he now comes back to himself and says I was travelling in nothingness without even feet having feet to use for travelling like the moon. The Moon travels in the darkness of the night, which is almost like nothingness when you look at it, and it has no feet Ain't be Pa Here I am, a footless runner to you, and then he hears the message from the universe, bong ye. Chemidavi, Benegar. Bangamat Chemidavi Benegar, dar chinn zohere na I heard the sound saying, "Why are you running? Look, just look at this hidden appearance. This totally." Appeared and manifest being that I am. This hidden and apparent presence. And then he ends with Shams' name, the name of his teacher. And he says, Since I met Shams, I am a sea, I am a treasure. I am the source of all treasures. Another tribute to a teacher who can teach you by just being there. See you all very soon in Radio Rumi. And if you wanted to write to me, you can email me at radiorumi.umd.edu. It's been a pleasure talking to you. <laughs>